Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to our Convention of States podcast, That Provident Article. This podcast series is a weekly discussion concerning the fifth article of the U.S. Constitution, the amending provision, with a general view on the phrase Convention for Proposing Amendments and specific focus on the Convention of States Project. My name is Paul Hodson, a volunteer with the Convention of States Project in Texas, first as a district captain and now as co-director in the great state of Texas. Our goal is to continually educate ourselves on Article 5, to bring timely information relating to the Convention of States Article 5 movement, and to promote the use of Article 5 to rein in our federal government. For more information regarding the Convention of States project, please visit www.conventionofstates.com. We welcome your participation in our podcast, including calling in at phone number 914-205-5632. You can also contact us by email, my email is director.tx.paul at tx-cos.com. My Twitter handle is at directortxpaul. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes at www.blogtalkradio.com slash DC for hd 58 or on iTunes, search for That Provident Article. All of the music you hear is brought to you courtesy of America's most patriotic rock band, endorsers of the Convention of States Project, Madison Rising. Please visit their website at www.madisonrising.com. We begin each episode by reciting the pertinent information from Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. The Congress, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. And then we read our, our own specific application that we have. The legislature of the state of fill-in-the-blank hereby applies to Congress under the provisions of Article 5 of the Constitution of the United States for the calling of a convention of the states limited to proposing amendments to the Constitution of the United States that impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limit the terms of office for its officials and for members of Congress. And welcome to our December 19th podcast for that Provident article. We want to begin with our news. We're going to keep this quite short today on the news segment. We've got a, a presentation a little bit longer than normal. We want to wrap all that up for who says it's a constitutional convention today. The news, again, I direct you to the site, www.conventionofstates.com backslash news blog is where it, we have the listing of all of our news for the past, not just week, but in chronological order, most recent at the top on down. And let me again remind you that Professor Rob Nadelson has, has concluded his six-part series covering the full breadth of Article 5 history. The first two parts were available last week, and the last fall Four parts have now been posted, so that's a great short summary, great detail by Professor Nadelson on the, the history of Article 5 throughout our nation. You can see it there on, on the website, or it's also posted at the Washington Post. 
The only other story I really want to point you to on our news, great article written up by our pal Garrett Humbertson there at, at uh, National who runs our media. Uh, he wrote on uh, senior advisor Tom Coburn, and uh, Senator Coburn has compared addressing the nation's problem of federal overreach with the same way he directed his doctors to treat his stage four prostate cancer. And the quote is, kill the cancer. And that's, of course, the advice he gives to all the state legislators he meets with. Our job in, in killing federal overreach is to kill that federal overreach through the use of the most powerful medicine we have, which is an Article 5 Convention of the States. Okay, as promised, we're going to move on to the presentation at this point in time. We want to conclude our presentation on who says it's a constitutional convention. Slide one is up if you have that. We're going to do some review for these first few slides of the previous four episodes on this. Multiple instances in the last 45 years or so of the phrase constitutional convention. The importance of language in definition in framing an argument or a defense, as Voltaire has said, if you wish to converse with me, define your terms. There's no evidence of the phrase constitutional convention used in any Article 5 applications before 1903. A handful of applications used that phrase between 1903 and 1910. There's no evidence, again, of the phrase constitutional convention used in any Article 5 applications from 1910 through 1975. Slide two. Well, beginning in 1939, there were multiple Article 5 efforts in this States for several different issues, including repeal of the 16th Amendment, presidential term limits, streamlining Article 5, and reversing overseeing Supreme Court decisions. Similar, uh, there are similarities in some of those to what we're looking at today. In response to these efforts to curb federal power, a disinformation campaign was started by members of Congress, Supreme Court justices, and left-leaning educators and influential writers. Slide three. This disinformation campaign began with Congressman Wright Patman of Texas in 1951, and it continued with law professors Charles Black of Yale and William F. Swindler of the College of William and Mary. And the common thread in this campaign was the rhetoric that a, quote, convention for proposing amendments, unquote, was fascist, reactionary, and would, quote, rewrite the whole Constitution. Slide four. The first phase of this disinformation campaign culminated with Swindler's Georgetown Law Review article in 1963, where he declared, quote, only a federal agency, Congress, as provided by the Constitution, is competent to propose amendments, and the convention procedure should be disregarded as, quote, no longer of any effect, unquote. The second phase of this disinformation campaign includes Chief Justice Earl Warren, stating that an Article 5 amending convention could be, quote, used unwisely by an uninformed public, could soon destroy the foundations of the Constitution, unquote. And Senator Everett Dirksen led a campaign in the late 1960s to call a convention to rein in the Supreme Court. He was opposed by Senators Tidings, Robert Kennedy, William Proxmire, and Jacob Javits, arguing they argued that the convention could not be limited. They did not have any evidence they presented for that. They just made that argument up. Okay, on to slide number five, and here's where we're going to pick up uh, no longer review. We're picking up where we left off the last four weeks. The talking points from Professor Charles Black were repeated by Kennedy's speechwriter Theodore Sorensen in a sa Saturday Review article. 
And his arguing was that a minority will control the process. That was his quote. Then he later testified before Congress that an Article 5 convention might, quote, amend the Bill of Rights, limit free speech, reopen the wars between church and state, limit the Supreme Court's jurisdiction or the president's veto power or the congressional war-making authority, unquote. Again, fear-mongering. Uh, today, they will, you'll often hear the arguments in which they just change what might get changed. Uh, they will change the wording. They will change the focus of, you're going to open it up. A lot of times they'll state the Second Amendment. It's the same argument, uh, just plug and play whichever, whichever uh, issue you want to focus on to get people's fear, uh, to, to get them fearful of what's happening. And that's the arguments these people were making then. It's the type of arguments they're making now. They just plug and play, put in whatever issue they want to push your panic button. Another law professor weighed in in 1968. University of Michigan law professor Paul J. or Paul G. Cowper, he wrote in the Michigan Law Review that, quote, Congress has broad power to fashion the ground rules for the calling of the convention and to prescribe basic procedures to be followed, unquote. He didn't provide any evidence for that. He just stated it. He continued, uh, here we are on slide six, the quote, the national legislature is obviously the most appropriate body for exercising a supervisory authority, unquote. Now, where did he get that? Because that's actually completely disregards the very existence for the second mode of amending the Constitution. Again, we, we have heard this and we've seen this over and over as we've studied this issue. The elite, be it the professors, the educators, be it the Supreme Court justices, be it the liberal-minded uh, members of Congress, all believing that they, the national legislature, are the ones who are the appropriate body, the ones who have the the knowledge, the ones who, who have the skill, not those who voted them in. They don't have enough skill or competence to be able to handle something as uh, important as amending the Constitution. Leave it to the professionals. Well, our old friend Charles Black chimed in again in 1972. Uh, this time in the Yale Law Journal, well, again in the Yale Law Journal, and he, he was objecting to a bill that had been proposed by Senator Sam Irvin that would, quote, would make amendment far too easy, unquote. So Senator Irvin had a bill which had some other issues, but that those issues didn't bother Black. His concern was the states were going to get the ability to make amending the Constitution even a little bit easier. Well, you start threatening the power of the people in Washington, and they get a little perturbed. So Black further contended that the process permitted a minority to impose amendments on the majority. That state legislature should that the state legislature should have no control over the procedure, and that the president could veto the congressional call. There is absolutely nothing in Article Five or in any history which states that those should be tr true. That those should be the expectations of an Article Five convention, but. Professor Black stated those as, here's what should happen. State legislatures have no control. President can veto it. And a minority will take over and impose amendments on the majority. Of course, the whole purpose of the amending clause, either process, is consensus. They're, the framers were greatly fearful of that possibility, minority imposing on the majority. They truly wanted amending your actual structural document. That takes consensus in your nation. And finally, 
in Charles Black's article, this he said he, in these statements he was defying clear precedent, but he claimed that governors could veto a state application. There's no evidence of that anywhere. But the most damaging in this article, 1972, was his redefinition of the phrase general convention. We covered this weeks and weeks ago back, the, the phrase general, and, and that seems to mean now, and because of Charles Black using it and it becoming uh, purposed that way, a general convention means it's, it, you can do whatever you want. It, this is one in which you can discuss anything. The word general is used back in the day of the 1600s and 1700s when conventions were held fairly regularly. That meant everybody got invited. It's a general call. We want all the states invited, or even before then, all the colonies invited they, to participate. Uh, that was as opposed to a not limited in scope, but one in which was a regional convention. And there were many regional conventions. That was the way the phrase was used. Charles Black uses the same word, general convention, now applies it, his definition of terms. Remember what Voltaire said. There was a very first episode we have had on this in part one. Voltaire saying that defining your terms, I can't have a discussion with you until you define your terms. And when you redefine your terms, you change the grounds of the debate. Slide seven. Black then made the bold claim in the same article that all legislative resolutions calling for a convention during the Constitution's first century were unlimited to subject. Well, that's a claim that's easily refuted. We already covered this. We actually read through quite a few of those applications from the late 1700s and in the 1800s, and they are very much limited to subject. They are very specific at times. Uh, our, our episode did that, and we're, you're able to just go look at the actual documentation. It's very easy to find on the Internet, the documentation of these resolutions. So why? Why are such bold and un, not just unsubstantiated, and they are unsubstantiated, they're bold, unsubstantiated, but demonstrably untrue statements made over and over again concerning an Article 5 Convention for Proposing Amendments. It's, and I'm going to quote Nadelson's article here, it's to protect Congress and the Supreme Court from constitutional accountability for their actions. And constitutional accountability is another, another way to say separation of powers and checks and balances. The very structure of the Constitution, the, the redefining of how Article 5 is presented is to protect their reconstruction and their redefinition of checks and balances and of the separation of powers. They want to keep their power. They do not want to have accountability to that final check and balance available to them through Article 5, as James Madison called it, that provident article, the power, the authority that the states have to rein in the federal government through the amendment process. Slide number eight. That's the final act of disinformation here, and this is where we've been heading all along, when we say who says it's a constitutional convention, the rebranding the process to evoke a fear of the process. I'll repeat that. They rebranded the process to evoke a fear of the process. What, what a great way to, to phrase that. It's If you can think of the word constitutional convention, the phrase, that this occurred, this really began to be pushed in the late 1970s. The balanced budget amendment push began, began to bubble to the surface from the people. There was also a push actually in Congress 
1979, an organization called the National Tax Limitation Committee, they began an organized drive for the movement. And the opposition propaganda machine rolled into high gear. Slide number nine. A Kennedy admirer named Richard Rovere, he wrote the following in the New Yorker magazine describing the specter of a convention that might, quote, reinstate segregation and even slavery throughout all or much of the Bill of Rights, eliminate the 14th Amendment's due process clause, and reverse any Supreme Court decision the members didn't like, including the one-man-one-vote rule, and perhaps for good measure, eliminate the Supreme Court itself, unquote. Again, as we just mentioned a few minutes ago, it's just plug-and-play, throw in issues which people will be frightened of, scared of, which will uh, make sure people, oh, they can't do that. We revere our Constitution. We don't want them to do that. Don't touch it. Don't touch it because they could do anything. And over and over again, they use this tactic. They just change the issues that they put in there. Um, really, there's no accompanying explanation in this article from Richard Revere as to how 38 states, 38 states, might be convinced to ratify such proposed amendments. You know, how are they going to ratify reinstating segregation or slavery? 38 states throwing out the Bill of Rights. 38 states eliminating the Fourth Amendment's due process clause. Really? 38 states reversing any Supreme Court decision. 38 states including the one-man-one-vote rule. 38 states eliminating the Supreme Court itself. You're going to get 38 states to agree to that. He doesn't even mention that particular limitation, that restraint, constraint, which is put on it through Article 5, which has been exercised 27 times, that ratification process. Slide number 10. Opponents then hit, with this rebranding, the mother load, the successful promotion of the rebranding of a convention for proposing amendments. They changed that phrase to a constitutional convention. Well, that phrase is pregnant with imagery. It, it's a phrase which purposely brings to mind the idea of revolution, men in arms, and a complete rewrite, restructure of government. That's what we think of. We've been taught through our, our history class. There was the American Revolution. We had articles of confederation as they were fighting. Uh, they had those in place, and those didn't completely work. And we went ahead and rewrote our government again with the Constitution. But you got to have a revolution to get there. We tie those together in our history because it, they're meant to be tied together. That is what happened. We had a revolution. We rose up as a nation, uh, a collection of states against a tyrannical government, defeated them, and we had, to, we had to structure our own government. And that's what occurred. But branding every, con every convention, a constitutional convention, is ignorant of history. Throughout American history, more than 30 conventions of states have been held. We've referenced those in previous episodes. It's quite easy to reference them through the available documentation. Only two conventions have qualified as constitutional conventions, as they did indeed propose complete remodelings of the political system. The 1787 Federal Convention and the 1861 Montgomery, Alabama Convention, which drafted the Confederate Constitution. Those are the only two of the more than 30 that can truly be considered constitutional conventions where a structure of government was put into place or a, uh, a writing of a structure of government was put into place. Slide 11. So this purposeful confusion with the phrase 
Constitutional Convention is a product of the latter half of the 20th century. There is no evidence, we've covered this in previous episodes, no evidence of the phrase being used in any 18th or 19th century state resolution, state, or federal court decision. The most common reference being made was Convention of the States or a variation of that phrase, Convention of the States. We could see, we, we read some of those applications, Conventions of the Sovereign States, a, uh, a meeting of states, or uh, things of that nature. It was always a variation on that phrase, Convention of the States. By affixing that CONCON label to an Article 5 Convention for Proposing Amendments, this was, and it is, a deliberate effort to alter English usage. Again, go back to the previous slide in which we talk about, uh, you say it's a constitutional convention, the imagery of the revolution, and this is a deliberate effort to tie that imagery in with an Article 5 amending convention. Well, where did this idea come from? We can speculate. Perhaps from those early that early 1900 campaign for the direct election of senators uh, back in the 1901, 1902, a congressional compiler you know, the person who brought in these resolutions from the various states had to list them out, get them into the congressional record to be read. He erroneously gave the title Constitutional Convention to a state resolution, and then a handful. We read those. We are not scared of the record. We read those back several episodes ago that in that, that period, 1900 to 1910, 1911, there were a handful of those resolutions which used the phrase Constitutional Convention. But then, interestingly enough, that phrase went away. Well, along that time, and dealing with that same issue, the direct election of senators, there was a, a senator, Weldon B. Hayburn, a Republican from Idaho. He was against this direct election, and he inadvertently or purposely used the same phrase in a speech. Quote, when the Constitutional Convention meets, it is the people, and it is the same people who made the original Constitution. And no limit on the original Constitution controls the people when they meet again to consider the Constitution, unquote. Well, there's no legal defense for this statement. And thankfully, it seems to have been completely disregarded. And as I stated just a few moments ago, that phrase Constitutional Convention did not come into vogue. It, this seems to be about the last time it's referenced for quite a while. In fact, let's fast forward to 1972. Now, we've gone through some of this phase, which we've covered in previous episodes, from 1951 into the 70s, in which we have a lot of this fear-mongering being brought in, a lot of the ideas of only Congress should have this authority because they're the only ones competent to do this. Uh, but now in 1972, our, our friend Charles Black's article, he repeatedly referenced the phrase, a constitutional convention. And that was not a phrase he had used in his previous article back in 1963. Slide 13, as we're about to wrap up here, uh, we're going we're gonna to fast forward and we're going to compress kind of the history of the, of the end here uh, as the phrase constitutional convention is used. In 1979, Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe referred to an amending convention as a, quote, constitutional convention. Well, he also described that such a convention would be an uncharted course, in his words, and he then listed a long list of questions about Article 5, to which he argued, quote, genuine answers simply do not exist, unquote. Well, those questions have been answered, and that that is no longer true, but the again, the big point, he, be, he also used that phrase, constitutional convention. They want to convey that imagery of 
disruption, uh, a disruption of the normal order, a revolution perhaps, but certainly a disruption of the integrity of the document itself. We're going to just completely rewrite it. We're going to have a complete, not a general convention, in, in, if we use the correct terminology, a plenipotentiary in convention, which means every issue is on the table. Well, that's not what that's not what resolutions have been applying for over the centuries. Several more law professors we want to mention who also picked up this phrase, constitutional conventions. Law professors, again, Gerald Gunther from Stanford University, Walter E. Dellinger for, from Duke University. They both labeled, there in the late 70s, early 80s, they labeled Article 5 amending conventions as, quote, constitutional conventions. And there were more articles, and, and you can... Read Nadelson's uh, argument on this, his, his article that we have referenced at the end. More articles, uh, comments from congressmen, even from Chief Justice Warren Burger several times, they labeled an Article 5 amending convention as a constitutional convention. And there was just no precedent for that until, uh, apart from that very minor gap in the 1900 to 1910 range, no precedent for that until 1972 in Charles Black's article, and really no precedent at all anywhere for the fear-mongering until the early 1960s, when there was a great fear amongst the progressives that power was going to be taken away from them because the states were going to exercise their constitutional right under Article 5 to rein in the federal government. And that's where we are today, folks. Our, our, our uh, mission with the Convention of States Project is to rein in the power of the federal government. We'll go over application real quick, real simply. To limit, to uh, impose fiscal restraint, to limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and to impose term limits on federal officials and on members of Congress. It's, it's real simple. Those are all dealing with power. None of those issues, reining in the federal government, has nothing to do with the Bill of Rights. You know, removing your right to bear arms, removing your freedom of speech is not an imposition and reigning in power of the federal government. It's giving them more. It's a, that's a contradiction. So we, again, want to emphasize not a constitutional convention. The people who instituted and, and brought in that phrase and rebranded Article 5 were all liberal, progressive, but mostly they were fearful of losing power, fearful of losing the ability to have just the federal government and even just particular branches, whoever had the most sway or control or whoever had an issue before them, have the ability to hold a constitutional convention at any time, which is what they do today. Uh, as I believe it's an Idaho, an Idaho legislator who has stated this, the uh, Constitutional convention or the runaway convention is a myth. The, uh, the reality of a constitutional convention every day in Congress, that, that's reality. And that's what's happening today. The solution is the Convention of States project. Our application brings all kinds of things available to be discussed and to be proposed as amendments. All things that can be dealing with the overreach of the federal government. Our last slide here, of course, is our attribution again, uh, particularly the, the Rob Nadelson article, which he's had out for about a year. Uh, actually, a lot of things that he's written, as we've mentioned in the news this past week, uh, are also in this same article. 
and of course the uh, the book from Russell Kaplan back in 1988, Constitutional Brinkmanship. And we're not going to have time for phone calls today. I, I feared that this episode would go a little long on the presentation. There was a lot of information I wanted to capture before we moved along into the two Christmas and, and New Year's holidays. I believe next week we will be covering, um, we're going to cover a little bit of perhaps political party involvement and even the process of getting involved in, in conventions, you know, precinct or parish or wherever you're at in, in your states, however they're structured, those type of levels of participation with the party and how that can be effective in working our, our resolution forward. Uh, until then, uh, until we talk next week, again, Madison Rising with America the Beautiful. And that will do it for another episode of That Provident Article. We want to again give a thank you to Madison Rising. Go visit their website at www.madisonrising.com. I especially want to again send you to www.conventionofstates.com. If you haven't volunteered, if you haven't signed a petition, become a supporter. Please go out there and do so. Get involved with your state legislatures. Get involved with your state team in whatever state you're in. And again, a big thank you to the Texas Convention of States team. Thank you to all the listeners here. We appreciate it. And we'll listen to Madison Rising and America the Beautiful.